if this morning, if you happen to slip in and did not grab a worship folder this morning, uh, everybody is going to need one of those. So if you don't have a worship folder, uh, just go ahead and raise your hand real quick. We got ushers in the back. Uh, they'll give you uh, one of those today. They're on sale for $2. And so go ahead and grab some of those. And so again, if you don't have one of those, just raise your hand. Everybody's going to need one of those today. And one of our ushers will get you one. Uh, two men had headed out west to do some hunting. After a long day, they decided to head back to the camp. And so in order to ward off any predators, uh, one of the men said, you know what, we should start a fire. There's bears and snakes and all kinds of stuff around here, and so let's start a fire. And so his friend said, hey, that's a good idea. And so he kind of looks around for some brush and some sticks or you know, something to start a fire with. And when he reaches down and grabs some brush and stirs it up, a rattlesnake jumps out from the brush and bites him right in the backside. And he yells out to his friend, he said, run into town, find a doctor. He said, I've been bit by a rattler in the butt. And so his friend runs into town, sees the ER lights, runs in, is like, I need a doctor, I need a doctor. So the doctor runs out and uh, says, hey, what's going on? And so he said, my friend is back at the camp, he's been bit by a rattlesnake, he's already having trouble breathing. Um, I I don't know if he's going to make it or not. He said, can you help us? And the doctor said, well, where did he get bit at? And he said, right on the backside. And so the doctor said, well, I've got good news and bad news. And uh, his, he said, well, listen, um, I need good news. And so what's the good news? Uh, he said, the good news is, is that uh, we can save his life. And his friend said, well, that's great. He said, whatever the bad news is, is irrelevant as long as we can save his life. He said, so hit me with the bad news. And so the doctor said, the bad news is, you're going to have to make an incision and suck out the poison. And so the man ran back towards the camp. He finds his friend. He's barely conscious. He leans down into his ear and he says, hey, bad news. You're going to die, right? So I've got some good news and some bad news this morning. Uh, the good news is, is on paper, this is a short sermon, all right? So that's, that's the good news. The bad news is, at the end of it, I'm going to make a big ask, all right? So let me invite you to take your Bibles as we rack up, uh, wrap up this Engage Mission Week, and we're going to look at two passages this morning, Luke chapter 15, familiar passage for many of you, and then we're also going to look uh, in the second half at Psalm 67, which is often known as the missional or missionary psalm. So Luke 15 and Psalm 67 for a message titled, To the Ends of of the earth. Now, if you're worried because uh, we've yet to receive an offering where we normally do, uh, don't be, you think we forgot? I'm just going to assume this is your first time in a Baptist church. We've never forgotten an offering, right? So there'll be time for that at the end uh, as a part of that. So don't, don't worry about that. And we'll also be taking up our special uh, engaged mission offering. It's the only special offering we take up the entire year. And so uh, let's wrap up Missions Week and look at one of those famous parables in the Bible, and then uh, Psalm 67 as well. So Luke chapter 15, uh, I'm going to start off reading verses 1 down through verse 7 this morning. Luke 15, 1 says, Then all the tax collectors and the sinners drew near to him to hear him. And the Pharisees and scribes complained, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. And so he spoke this parable to them, saying, What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he loses one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the wilderness and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? 
And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep, which was lost. I say to you that likewise, there will be more joy. So that's a quantifiable, measurable, more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 just persons who need no uh, repentance. And so we're going to look at uh, these two passages this morning. We're going to look in Luke chapter 15 uh, that, that reveals to us the heart of God as it relates to people who are far from God, who don't know Jesus Christ uh, as their Savior. And the second uh, passage we're going to look at, Psalm 67, tells us the scope or the extent to which God wants us to run after people who are far from him. And so uh, one truth out of each passage this morning uh, is simply this. So the first Truth I want you to see in Luke chapter 15 is the reason that we're to run to the ends of the earth with the gospel and go after people we've never met, may never meet on this side of eternity is because this one truth in Luke 15 is simply this, is that lost people matter to God. Lost people, people who are far from God are on the heart of God. There's no question about that when you look at the New Testament, certainly when you look at this passage and what it's all about. Now, Luke 15 uh, is a parable, but it still is an accurate representation because here's what parables are. Parables are fictitious stories that teach real truths. And so Jesus is telling about some uh, fictitious kind of scenarios about lost sheep and a lost coin and a lost son, but those fictitious stories are teaching real truths about the heart of God. And so why these aren't real stories, it's teaching a real truth about how we should respond to people who are far from God and how we encounter people. And I want you to see two observations in this passage that build the case that lost people matter deeply to God. And the first one is simply this, is that people who did not agree with Jesus wanted to be around Jesus. People who did not buy into his message, people when he laid down the gauntlet of this is what it looks like to follow me, listen, uh, the people who didn't stand for what he stood for, people that did not agree with Jesus wanted to be around Jesus. It's one of the most fascinating things in the New Testament. We see it here over and over. Uh, now in chapter 15, verses 1 and 2, uh, this is a literal account. The, the parable doesn't start until verse 3. And so in chapter 15, verse 1, this is literal history here. Then all the tax collectors and the sinners drew near to him to hear him. Now, their motive in being near Jesus was not, uh, was not anything that was pure. It was about trapping Jesus. It was about you know, trying to ask him a question he couldn't answer so everybody wouldn't be so impressed with him. It was about trying to find disconnects between what he taught and what the law had said or what he taught and what he was living. And so in verse 15, they're around him for a, a, a bad motive. But then look at verse 2. The Pharisees and the scribes complained, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. Now, the word and there is in there on purpose. It's to separate two different truths. And so the first one is simply, he said, this man receives sinners. And, and what they're describing is Jesus just kind of met people wherever they were. Now, that was totally the opposite of the Pharisees. For the Pharisees, if you wanted to come near to God, 
You had to clean yourself up first. And because they were agents of God or spokespeople on God's behalf, representing in their minds the character of God, that if you wanted to come near and have any kind of conversation with them, you had to get yourself cleaned up first. But Jesus is just the opposite. And so their charge was this. Here's a guy who's holy, who's coming to contact with people who are unholy, and he's not making them change before they, uh, he receives them. Totally foreign to the Pharisees. And so uh, not only did he receive them, kind of meet them where they were spiritually upon that uh, encounter, not only did he receive them was their complaint. The second thing they said, and he eats with sinners, He sat down to a a meal with them. And what we know about the culture of meals in that country at that point in time, it it is nothing like meals uh, for us. It was a totally different environment, different purpose, totally radical. So this is not, uh, you know, Jesus is like, hey guys, I'm taking a quick trip through the golden archers. Uh, Do you want to ride with me, right? Or to be more biblically faithful, it's like, hey guys, I'm going to Chick-fil-A. You want to go as well, right? This was none of that. That when the Bible says he receives them, he's kind of meeting where they are spiritually, and he eats with them, what he's saying is this. He's building a relationship with them. The meals in that day were, were leisurely. They were hours long. And what was more important was not what was on the table. It was the conversations that were had around the table. And so here's what they're saying. He receives unholy people into his presence before they're made holy, and he's taking an interest in their lives. He's getting to know the language from last week's message. Uh, He's getting to know the names, stories, and needs of these people who are far from God. And we see this over and over in the New Testament, in the Gospels, that people who did not agree with Jesus, as evidenced by there was uh, not obedience in their life, uh, that they wanted to be around Jesus. Do you know what that means? That, listen, if you're a Christian and you love Christ, and the people around you who are far from Christ don't know that you love them, you're doing it wrong. And we've kind of come to a place in our culture where um, we almost think that, listen, that the more that people who don't know Christ dislike us, somehow the more faithful we are to Christ. We've taken a stand, we've drawn a line in the sand, they know what we stand for. No, listen, they just don't like you. And if people who don't know Christ don't want to be around you because the way you're representing Christ, then guess what? You're not doing it like Jesus did. Because the people who didn't disagree with him wanted to be around him. And so we know that lost people matter to God. Almost in our culture, we've taken the opposite. If we're the more unlikable we are by non-Christians, the more faithful we are to Christ. And can we just be honest? Anytime that there's someone who knows Christ who's spending a lot of time hanging out with people who don't know Christ. Can we just be honest? There's a part of us that thinks somehow they've compromised, right? So somehow they've, they've kind of gave in to some things. They're spending that much time around people who are far from God that somehow they're just not concerned about holiness as we are. Listen, the holiest person who ever lived, the charge leveled at him was this. He receives and eats with sinners, And so how do we know that lost people matter to God? Because people who did not agree with Jesus wanted to spend time around Jesus. They didn't share his values, but they know they were valued by him. 
And so here's the question for all of us. Are the people in our circles who are far from God, do they want to be near to us? Do the people who do not share our values, are they absolutely convinced that they're valued to us? And so we know that lost people matter to God by the example and the life of Jesus, the charge leveled at him in Luke 15, 1, by the Pharisees and the scribes. And so uh, here's what else, uh, as a result of the fact that lost people matter to God, the, the second reality we see in Luke 15 is simply this, is that we do not rest until valuable things are found. Let's do a little survey this morning. How many of you who are in the room who are parents at some point in time you have lost one of your kids to the point where it got scary anybody would you just raise your hand if that's you yeah keep your hand up really high yeah the people with their hands not raised they're judging us right now all right well, when Ethan was, was a little boy, Tasha was at this huge event uh, up in day I can't remember I think it was a WWF thing she's a huge closet Andre the Giant fan right I don't even remember what it was and so she's there, there's just you know, thousands of people there, and uh, she, she turns around, and Ethan is gone. I mean gone. Actually, they were at a Disney event, and uh, he had a Buzz Lightyear costume on. She said, I turned around, he was talking to her sister-in-law, I turn around, and there's like hundreds of little Buzz Lightyears running around, right? And I said, will you go after that one that has a tax deduction attached to it, right? That's valuable to us, we're poor. Panicked. Uh, one time when she was uh, upstairs, she says, hey, I'm going I'm to go upstairs, take a bath. And she said, you're in charge of Josie. <sighs> i got four kids. Like, uh, you, no problem. And about a point in time, I'm like, hey, <laughs> have you guys seen Josie? And so, like, uh, it goes from, hey, where's Josie at, to she's kidnapped, she's in California or south, right? We're darting out the door, I mean, losing our mind. You know how when you think it's what really is lost is you don't care that you look crazy to the people around you. You know, you're just yelling and crying, and, and we go out, and we can't find her. You go that way, you go that way. And, like, I said, I'm going to get in the car and drive around <laughs> I'll never forget this. I get in the car, I turn right, and I'm driving down, and all of a sudden I see a lady in her driveway about five houses down holding a baby. Josie's like two. And as I get closer, not only is she holding a baby, she's holding a baby that's buck naked. It's Josie. And there's that part you're like, praise God, she's found. The other part's like, just keep driving, right? Like you're, and so... What, what, how, like, I, at that point, I got out of the car and Liddy's like, I looked out my back door and there was a naked little kid running across through the backyard, you know, chasing our dogs. What happened? Now, at that you know what happened? I didn't care. You know why? Because the thing that was lost has deep value, and I was willing to do whatever it takes until it was found again. Tasha didn't care. She's running, screaming at you know, U.S. Bank Arena, and, and people are lo- looking at her. She's crying. Why? Because what was lost has deep value. We do not rest until valuable things are found. And in Luke chapter 15, uh, this is the only, that, that's the message that Jesus is getting across to these people Listen, it's the only time in the Bible where Jesus responds to something, not once, not twice, but three times. You ever had a parent or a person in authority uh, say to you, don't make me say that again, don't make me repeat myself, right? Jesus does it three times here in this passage for emphasis. 
And so he's uh, trying to correct them. They, they have no idea about the heart of God, the mission of God, the character of God. And so he says, you know what? I'm just going to tell you this story. And they don't get it. So here's what he says in verse 3. He starts the parable. He spoke a parable then saying, what man of you, verse 4, having a hundred sheep, if he loses one of them, does not leave the 99 in the wilderness and go after the one which is lost until he finds it. Now, in a literal context, the reason you would leave the 99 and go after one is because you couldn't sustain uh, that kind of loss. Uh, Economically, if you lost 1% of your income, then three and a half days, 99 days later, you would have nothing. And so uh, that'd be catastrophic. So they, in an agrarian culture, they understood that uh, economically. They understood the economics of, of that cultural course. If, if one runs off, you can't sustain a loss like that. You go after that one. What they could not reconcile is the economy of God. They could not reconcile this idea that according to this passage, um, verse Seven, uh, I say to you that likewise, there will be more joy. That's a measurable, quantifiable statement. He's saying, whatever joy you think you have, Pharisees, because you're right with God, you don't think you need repentance, you don't realize you're lost, whatever joy you think God gets in, look at your life. If there was 99 of you in the room, then quantifiably, measurably, there is more joy in the economy of God when one sinner repents and comes into the flock or the family of God. And they're just, they, they cannot fathom that. I mean, their whole life is about looking righteous at the expense of pursuing people who are unrighteous. And so Jesus says, like, I'm just going to keep going because you're not getting the message here. And then so he goes to the second parable, uh, verse 8. Look what's he say. And what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it. Now, we don't have as much appreciation for this because let's be honest, like if I drop a coin in the ground, I'm I'm just gonna keep walking, right? Like I'm not freaked out about it. I'm not, uh, but let me explain something about this. And there's a little disagreement uh, on what the audience would have understood this coin uh, to represent. Uh, Some say the coin was uh, one of 10 drachmas. It was a Greek uh, silver coin. It was equal to a day's wages of a worker. And so they would say, of course it was valuable to her. Others say the coin represented a part of her dowry and therefore represented her security, her future security as a married woman. Others still would argue that the coin was a part of their jewelry. Jewish women who were betrothed to be married would wear a headband. And in that headband would be 10 coins in that. And so it would signify their upcoming nuptials. So, so listen, it doesn't matter where you land on those. Inter- it does, it's irrelevant. The fact of the matter is this. This was not an ordinary coin. It had deep value, very precious to her. So much the fact that she said, you know what? This expensive oil that we light our house with, I'm willing to burn some of it to find that thing. Uh, So much, in fact, that the scripture says uh, in verse 8, she searched carefully. Some translations say diligently. She's taking a broom trying to find uh, this coin. We don't even understand the significance of that. Here's why. Listen, uh, this is a fictitious woman. 
And, and so she lived in a real house. Uh, here's what we know. She wouldn't have had laminate, hardwood, or Berber. I, any of those, right? Dirt floor. Let me ask you something. When's the last time you excavated ground using a broom? And if you're like, well, just the other day. Well, then you're crazy and you don't know it, all right? She's taking a broom. And she's trying to uncover. We don't know how far down into the dirt this coin had gotten pressed. We know she's willing to stay up late past sunlight. She's using a broom to unearth a quarter inch, a half inch, an inch of dirt. We have no idea. Here's what we know. Whatever it was, it was incredibly valuable to her. And Jesus said, you know what? When she finds it, she tells everybody she knows that it was lost and now it's been found. And and they're still not getting it. And so Jesus says, you know what? I'm just going to keep going. And then so look at verse 11. He says, then he said, a certain man had two sons. Now, if you're not a Christian or you're kind of exploring Christianity or or maybe just new in the church, you don't know the Bible very well, my guess is even if that's true of you, you've probably heard at some point some kind of reference to the story of the prodigal son. And that's what he goes into beginning in verse 11. So here's the cliff notes. Uh, The son wants his father's inheritance before the father has, has died. And the older son was always entitled to two-thirds of the inheritance. And so he was entitled to a third of it. And so he goes and asks his dad, he says, hey, you're not dead yet, but I'd like to have my money now. And so in that culture, basically what he was saying is, I wish you were dead. And so he goes and spends all of the money. And this is a, this is a parable. Let me just tell you how astounding this is. If this were not a parable, if this were real life, and a son went to his father and said, I want my money now, it's as good as saying you were dead. You know what would have happened? They would have brought him out uh, into the city gates under the Mosaic law, and they'd have brought him before the elders, and they said, he's broken the law, he's been disrespectful, he's dishonored his parents. They would have taken him outside the city gates, and they would have stoned him to death for being disrespectful to his parents. Now, that part of the law is still in effect kids, just take note, all right? And he wastes all of his money. You're like, what did he spend it on? Wine and women. Like, how do you know that? Because verse 30 says so. And when the party's gone, so are all of his friends, and he has nowhere else to turn. He says, you know what? I'm just going to go back and throw myself on the mercy of the Father. And the Bible says that when the father sees him from afar off, he runs off the porch to the son, which was shocking to this crowd. This is a patriarchal society. Dad was in charge of the household until he died. Dad did not run. You ran when dad called. And so the whole story is offensive to the Pharisees because they have black and white rules about how the world is supposed to work. And Jesus is dismantling all of those. And then if that's not enough, the father gives the repentant son things he does not deserve. Look at verse 22 down through verse 24. Verse 22, but the father said to his servants, bring out the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet. Bring the fatted calf here and, and kill it and let us eat and be merry. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to be merry. Like how Mary, well, here's what I know. This, wasn't, this is not a real family, right? It's a parable, but we know that it would not be a Baptist family. How do I know that? Because the end of verse 25 says the older brother heard music and dancing. 
right? You know why Baptists are so against drinking? They're afraid it might lead to dancing. Like we just know, right? Now here's what I want you to see in each of these examples. The lostness of the object never affected its value. The effort that the owner was willing to go through to find it and the celebration when they found it is what describes for us how deeply it was valued. Let me repeat that. The effort the owner was willing to go to to find it and the celebration they had when they found it is what tells us how deeply it was valued. What's the father say? My son who is dead is is alive. What's the lady say? She goes out and tells everybody, hey, listen, I finally found the coin. What's the shepherd say? He says, look, I finally brought the sheep back into the fold. All of those describe the value, the lostness of the object never affected its value. And someone's distance from God does not affect their value to God. What brings every lost person value is the fact of what's been shed on their behalf in order to redeem them and find them again. And it's nothing less than the blood of Jesus Christ. And so every person who's far from God is near to the heart of God as evidenced by the cross of Christ. And so the question is not, do they have value? The question is, are we valuing them? Are we willing to do whatever it takes to find people who are far from God and bring them near to the heart of God? And does it matter why they're far from God? Listen, the sheep was lost because it was ignorant. This is like a person who's like, well, they just didn't grow up in church. That's irrelevant. The coin was lost because of the irresponsibility of the owner. This is a person who grew up in a religious context and maybe they heard the gospel declared but never demonstrated or uh, saw it demonstrated but never declared irrelevant. Listen, the son was far from the father. Why? Because of willful disobedience, open rebellion. And so the question is not why are they lost? Why are they far from God? The question is are they near to the heart of God? And if they are and they are, what are we willing to do in response? So here's the key question. If lost people matter to God, does the rhythm of our life and prayers and sacrificial giving prove they matter to us, or is that something we just declare but never demonstrate? I also want to look at briefly at Psalm 67, because not only does God rejoice when lost people are found, Psalm 67 tells us that God wants to use you in the process. Look at Psalm 67. Psalm 67, verses 1 through 5, reads the following. It says, God, be merciful to us and bless us and cause his face to shine upon us. That your way may be known on earth, your salvation among all the nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you shall judge the people righteously and govern the nations on the earth. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. And so in this passage, I want to see two things very quickly. God wants to use you, number one, so that the world may know him. You ever have a hard time praying for yourself? You feel selfish or guilty like, 
I don't know if it's okay that I pray that God would bless my life. And I don't know if it's okay that I would pray that God would have mercy, uh, you know, display his mercy through my life. I don't know if it's okay that I would pray that God's face would shine upon me, which is symbolic of his favor, would lay on my life. Listen, according to Psalm 67, verse 1, it's okay to pray for those things. There's no correction for the psalmist praying for those things. That's exactly what he's praying for. God, be merciful to me, bless me, and may your favor Display to my life, may your face shine on me. But here's the motive in all of that. Why is he praying those things? Why should we pray those things? The motive is revealed in verse two. Look at verse two again. That, there's a cause and effect here. God, I want you to do this. Verse one, show your mercy, bless me, let your favor be in my life. Verse one, so that. Your way may be known on earth. Your way may be known among this uh, salvation, among all nations. He's saying, God, I'm praying for these things, not just for my own sake, not for the sake of the people who have the same last name as me, not for the sake of the people who live in my neighborhood. Yes, we want to know their names, stories, and needs. He's saying, Lord, I'm praying that you would bless my life. And that people would see that and know your great name, that you did all those things. It was your mercy and your blessing and your favor in my life. And I'm praying that that when they see that, the ripple effect would be that all the nations would know the name of my great God. Warren Wearsby writes this. He said, a blessing is a gift from God that glorifies his name, helps people, and through them reaches out to help others who will also glorify his name. God, give me mercy. Bless my life. May your face shine upon me so that the whole world knows your name. And secondly, so that the whole world may worship you. We give and we go and we pray and we pour out our lives for missions Listen, and it's not just to be obedient to the Great Commission. It's a higher motivation than that. We do so because we operate out of the deep, life-altering, resource allocation, redistribution conviction that Jesus is worthy of the worship of the whole world. Look at verse 3 and 5 quickly. Verse 3, Psalm 67, let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the people praise you. Go down to verse 5. Let the peoples praise you, God. Let all the peoples praise you. Missions is not the goal. Missions is a means to an end. And the end is the worship of Jesus Christ who's worthy of the worship of the whole world. John Piper in his book, Let the Nations Be Glad, writes the following. Missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Missions exist because worship does not. Worship is ultimate, not missions, because God is ultimate, not man. And so I'm not asking you, does Jesus deserve the worship of the nations? That's why we do missions. I'm not at, listen, God's already declared that's true. He's worthy of all of that. What I am going to ask you is this. What are you willing to do as a result of that truth? Or better yet, how are you going to reallocate your time, treasure, and talents? Because that truth has settled deep in your heart. If Jesus is worthy of the worship of the nations, how is your life different? Because that's true. Let me tell you something. As long as I'm the pastor of this church, and today I am, 
this church is going to take the gospel and we're going to run to the ends of the earth because Jesus is worthy of worship. And no one can do everything, but everyone can do something. So literally, literally, for the glory of God, do something. I'm going to invite you to bow your heads. I'm going to ask you to take out that worship folder that everybody has. And our worship team is going to come and lead us in a final song of response. But I'm going to give you a moment to take that commitment card, to take that engage mission envelope, And I'm going to give you a moment for the glory of God to do something. And so you may say, I'm interested in partnering with one of our local partners. I'm interested in a short-term mission trip next year. I'm interested in one of the short projects. Maybe you're feeling a calling to missions. You want to explore that. Some of you need to give an offering today. And as you invest in the work of Liberty Heights, part of that work is going out to the gospel. Some of you need to give your engaged mission offering today. You're ready to do that today. Listen, the reality is no one can do everything. Everybody can do something. So do something literally for the glory of God. And so I'm gonna give you just a moment to do something. To give, to make a commitment of your time, do something for the glory of God. In just a moment, we're going to stand and we're going to sing. And as we stand and as we sing, as soon as we start singing, I'm going to invite you to do something we have never done, we, we do not do. If you're a guest, it doesn't apply to you. I'm going to invite you as we stand and sing. I'm going to invite you to take that commitment card, your regular offering, your engage offering, maybe all three. I'm going to ask you to come forward and drop it in one of these baskets. And I'm going to ask you to declare, Jesus is worthy. Jesus is worthy. Now, if you're not able to physically come forward, give it to someone else, they'll bring it forward for you, all right? So let's pray and ask God to be honored in this time of response. Lord, I pray that today we would not just declare that Jesus is worthy of the worship of the nations. God, I pray today we would demonstrate that Jesus is worthy of the worship of the nations. And so, Lord, may you be pleased, not only with what we do, but why we do it. May you be honored with these offerings today of our time, talents, and our treasures as we run to the ends of the earth for the glory of God. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Would you stand up?